Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. That's where we are going to be this evening. Acts 24. And uh, any, any Duck fans in the house? Was there like some booze that just happened? Here's the thing. Yesterday, I was rooting for the Beavers, okay? So all you Beaver fans out there, I'm just happy. I'm a Pac-12 guy, all right? You guys are like, he likes sports? Yes, I like sports. We're not a sports church. I know there's some churches, they're like sports church. They're like, you know, Easter Sunday's like football themed and like, you know, all that stuff. That's not us, but... I do really like sports, and, and I love my ducks, so we're going to just be interceding for them. We're having a, a prayer meeting right after this, just intercession for the ducks, if you want to join. Uh, Acts chapter 26, we are um, really getting close to the end of the book of Acts, and uh, how the book of Acts essentially is structured is it starts with the story of the church, the story of the bride of Christ. There's, you know, been all of these, and, it, and it's really fascinating. I didn't, I didn't know this uh, until I started um, studying church history. But the church met in synagogues. So for the first, like, hundred years, the church was going around, uh, groups of Jewish believers were gathering in synagogues and then in people's homes. And so it's this really interesting um, kind of moment where it's like, is that Jewish? That's why you hear all the time in the New Testament, they're like, no, 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 we're actually the good Jews. We're doing Ju Judaism right. And there's yet to be this kind of delineation between, okay, that's Christian that's Jewish. It's kind of this amalgamation, this kind of mixing of it's Jewish Christian sort of thing that's going on. And so the, the book of Acts is telling this story. It spans a number of years, but it's telling the story of the very beginning of that. And then what happens is as we get to the end of the book of Acts, it zooms in on this person called Paul. Um, this church planter who went throughout the Mediterranean planting churches and then writing letters to those churches. And those letters eventually became, a lot of them became what we call the New Testament, but are just simply pastoral guidance uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit on how to be a Christian and what the gospel means. So where we're at in the story right now is the Jews in Jerusalem have made a big stink about Paul. They don't like Paul. And the Roman government is taking notice. They're like, what is the big deal? So they've actually arrested Paul because there's been some riotous activity because of him. And they're trying to figure out what is so bad about this guy, Paul. Um, and here, here's essentially what happens next. What happens next in this story is Paul's nephew, it's actually kind of wild. I was going to read it, but it's just, it would take too long. Paul's nephew overhears a plot by some Jews to ambush Paul and kill him. So imagine, like, little boy. <laughs> it's like ear to the wall, hearing what's going on in the other room, and they're like, we're going to ambush Paul, and we're going to kill this guy. And he's like, that's my uncle. So <clears throat> he goes and he tells Paul. Now, Paul is just 
Paul is such an opportunist. He's always looking for an opportunity to increase his audience. He's always looking for an opportunity. In this case, he's trying to get to Rome to get an audience with Caesar. And he sees an opportunity in this. He says, well, how about you guys transfer me to Caesarea to keep me safe? Now, um, Caesarea is on the coast of Israel. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean. So, you know, if you think about it, uh, there's inland Jerusalem. And I should actually go this way because that's how the map actually works. There's inland Jerusalem. And then there's, on the coast, uh, this town called Caesarea, okay? There, he makes it to Caesarea. He stays in a jail, in a jail at uh, Felix, the governor's house, so imagine this governor's palace, um, Paul's in the dungeon or whatever, he's in the basement in a jail. And I've actually been to this house. Here's what the ruins of this house look like. So, so it, it would have been just this very nice, you know, million dollar view of the Mediterranean. That day <laughs> that we were there, it wasn't nice weather. Uh, the, on my weather app, it just said dust. So uh, <laughs> that's what you're getting. You're getting a little, um, you know, Instagram filter on that one. Uh, but this is where they, they know. This is where Paul was in this section of the text that we're about to read. Okay, so look down at your Bibles. Chapter 24, verse 1. Here's what it says. Five days later. So, okay, Paul's been transferred to the governor's palace. Five days later, the high priest Ananias... Remember, that's the one who Paul was like, you whitewashed tomb, remember last week? And then the guys were like, that's the high priest. And they, you know, slapped Paul in the face, essentially. Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. So he brings in the heavy hitter. And they brought their, cha- their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. So, Here's the deal. These Jews are just tattletales. So Paul gets transferred. He's like, this is awesome. I'm talking to the governor of Caesarea, this very important Roman port, and I get to share the gospel. And sh- sure enough, okay, there's Ananias, and they brought the lawyer. Okay, we know where this is going. They're going to totally tattle on Paul. Now, here's what they say. Look down at verse 5. We have found this man to be a troublemaker stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. (laughs) He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we're bringing about him. The problem for the Jews in this story is that they don't have an argument that appeals to Romans. They really don't. The Romans are like, what's so bad about, you guys are having these religious skirmishes, because the real reason isn't the riots. The real reason they're upset, we're going to find out, is, is something a little bit more theological. See, the Romans didn't care about religious laws or temples, and so the Jews have to play up this public disturbance issue. Now, Paul essentially, in the following verses, he says, no, They're lying. It's kind of a he said, he said sort of situation. I'm actually a good Jew doing good Jewish stuff, and I promise these guys are wrong, except there may be one thing, just one thing that I said that they maybe didn't like. Verse 21. Skip down to verse 21. He says this, unless it was this one thing I shouted (laughs) as I stood in their presence, I did shout it, quote, 
It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. See, it's not actually about the riots. It's not actually about this whole troublemaker narrative. It's because I shouted about the resurrection. Now, more on that next week for obvious reasons. Verse 22. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, that was um, an early language for, for Christians, for the body of Christ, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked, and notice this, about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Note, note that. And said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was, ho- he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. This is really where I want to place our focus this evening. Out of this text, this is what the Lord is really kind of jumping out and grabbing me with. See, what is just wild about all of this is that Felix is so unbothered by Paul that he lets Paul have this freedom. He's like, yeah, he can, you know, hang out there. Just maybe keep your eye on him. And he's more than welcome to have friends over. And I mean, this is essentially like a very, um, a very responsible 13-year-old sort of situation. It's like, no, he can have friends over. They can have sleepovers. Yeah, no, we trust them. So this is where Paul's at. It's like, yeah, it's totally fine for him to kind of do his own thing. Now, he also essentially invites Paul to have dinner with him and his wife overlooking the Mediterranean to talk about the gospel. But then Paul talks about three things that totally trigger him. The text, go, it goes out of its way to say in verse 25, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was a and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. And it's strange to me, because the text also says that Felix was familiar with the way. He was familiar with believers. His wife is Jewish. You would think that righteousness, self-control, and judgment were typical doctrinal issues of the early church that he would certainly have been familiar with. So why is he flustered? I would like to put forth to you this evening that there were entire theologies behind these words that Felix didn't understand the extent of until he met Paul. And if those three issues, righteousness, self-control, and judgment, seem trite or uninteresting to us today, it's because like Felix, we have forgotten their full extent. And so my prayer as we look at these three things this evening is that God would take a hold of us with the fear of the Lord because these three issues really encapsulate what the gospel is. Righteousness, it offends the religious. Self-control, it offends the libertine. Judgment offends those who believe that they're God. So I want to talk about these three this evening. The first, righteousness. See, what Paul means when he talks about righteousness 
extends from good activity, doing the right thing, which is maybe how you were brought up to believe what righteousness was, doing the right thing, uh, to an identity that is in Christ. From an activity to an identity. And this is the problem with the gospel for many. The gospel is not an add-on, it's a replacement of what many believe religion should be used for. It totally replaces religion. Here's, in the words of Martin Luther, the reformer, here's what he said. The world bears a grudge against the gospel. A grudge against the gospel. Because the gospel condemns the religious wisdom of the world. The wisdom of religion in the world says this. We have good news. There's a path for you. There's a give and a take. There's a way of dealing with sin that makes sense. You did wrong. You owe penance. You pay that penance and you will be good. You will be righteous. The gospel doesn't say that though. And this is scary for Felix because this means you cannot bargain with God. Romans chapter five, this is Paul. This is the theology Paul would have been sharing over. Can you imagine having Paul in your basement just getting to have dinners with him whenever you want? I mean, this is what Paul would be unloading. This is what he says. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what he would have been talking about. See, it, it, is, it is scary to know someone who will love you regardless of what you've done. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine a scenario. It's a little bit of a bleak scenario, but it's gonna get us to a, a better place, I promise. Uh, imagine a married couple. They've been married for a few years. Um, and after a few years of being married, the wife has an affair. The husband catches her in this affair and he forgives her. But she ends up doing it again. And once again, he finds out and he forgives her again. At this point, they're really working through things. It's become a, a, quite a strain on the marriage. A few years go by and she has another affair. He finds out about it, and he ends up forgiving her again. Not out of weakness, but strength. His love for her is real. At this point, the wife is distraught with the love that he is showing her, and she proclaims, why won't you stop loving me? See, the shame has so seeped into her identity that she cannot handle receiving what she knows she doesn't deserve. It's just too much. In fact, she would prefer that he was upset and angry and threatening because at least then she would feel like she paid for what she did. So what drives her so crazy is that he refuses to see her for what her actions have said and continues to treat her with the identity of wife. But you're my wife. See, with identity change, you forfeit the ability to pay someone back. 
you are then simply responsible for humbly accepting the identity and then choosing to walk in authenticity of that identity from that point forward. And I think that this is scary for the world. I think that this is one of the things that Felix was like, whoa, righteousness, what? It is far easier to allow identity to be shaped by your experience. Because in that case, you retain a little bit of control. Maybe that is just what I am. So then maybe we can work a deal out where I get to, I'll pay you back for what I do every now and then whenever I do wrong. But the message of righteousness says no. It confronts your identity. It says that's not who you are. Your identity has completely changed. You don't have the luxury of allowing your circumstances to tell you who you are or your actions to tell you who you are. Righteousness in Christ says your identity changed. What did the cross do? What did the cross actually do? Did it give us moral inspiration to an essentially evil people? So that all of life becomes this struggle between light and dark within you? Like a, a Christian yin and a yang? Or was your nature changed? It can't be both of those things. Here's some food for thought. Jesus says to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus wants to know about the kingdom, he says to him, you want to know about the kingdom? You have to be born again. That sounds like <clears throat> Nicodemus needs a new nature. Nicodemus is going to have to totally see things differently. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. <laughs> to make the point even more clear, here's Paul in Colossians. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The cross gave you a new nature. You're not the same. At the very least, your ability has changed because you've received the Holy Spirit. So it isn't like 50% saint, 50% sinner, and you just have this tension between you. No, no, no. You got a new nature. You can no longer keep just living the way that you're living and using nature as an excuse because your nature was changed. It's not who you are. You have to look to Christ, to who is your life, to know who you are. It is far easier to play the Christian yin and yang thing because you always have a reason for your behavior. That's just my shadow side. <laughs> it places you in the driver's seat because your righteousness is based upon how good you are at staving off your dark side within you. The problem is that the New Testament authors don't say that we have a shadow side. You died. 
whatever was that on that, that dark part of you, that yang part of you, it was killed in baptism. So either you got a new nature or you got, this is the only two options for us tonight. You either got a new nature if you're a believer or you got a new nature, but you believe that there's still a shadow side within you. Like, so you're wondering, why am I, why am I not seeing the righteousness that the scriptures talk about? What do you believe happened at the cross? The message of righteousness means that you cannot blame circumstances for sin. Every other religion says change your circumstances, change your practices, and you will get purity. But the gospel is the only message that says take in his purity, take in his surplus of love, and just watch. There will be no circumstance that can touch your righteousness. Whole life surrender is the only response that is correct to that, and that is terrifying to those who don't know his love. I think that we should give Jesus what he paid for. I think that it is offensive to the Lord to have him go to the cross and die for the sins of the world and then still attach sin as part of our identity. Did, we, did he do nothing? Was it a 90% crucifixion and a 90% resurrection? Or was it a 100% crucifixion and a 100% resurrection? What you believe about that will dictate the kind of fruit you see in your life. The second thing that Felix was terrified about is self-control. Now, the funny thing is that if the gospel was just, hey, believe that you're righteous and that what Christ did counted for you, uh, and that was it, that's what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. That's just cheap and in fact, any time that I've lived with that sense in my life, I know that I'm shortchanging what, what Christ has done for me. Religion says this. Religion says, I do good to get good. So we're not talking about that when we're talking about self-control. The gospel says, he has done such good. He has been so good to me. How can I correctly respond to this good? He- Heidi Baker says, love looks like something. Love looks like something. So I'm not going to create like a, a religious sort of like, here, can we uh, get rid of that slide real fast? Everybody's going to look at that, not me. Okay. I'm not going to create like a religious list of things for us to do, but love looks like something. And that's for you to figure out with the Lord. He did something, and it requires a response. There's a correct response to what he has done. And, and, and that correct response how you get to that is through self-control. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Why do we discipline ourselves? Why self-control? Well, it's out of response to his mercy. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, being willing to lay down anything that needs to be laid down, being willing to sacrifice anything that needs to be sacrificed. Now, why is this scary to Felix? This is me just kind of assuming or making a guess, but, but here's, here's why I think it is. Because if you don't understand self-control, then you're probably not in control. 
If you don't understand how to control yourself, you're not the one who's in control. If all of your life is reaction to circumstances rather than responding to his voice, you're out of control. The people you hate control you. The people you lust after control you. The money you think you need controls you. See, the primary issue that St. Augustine saw in humans was that man had disordered desires in his heart, in her heart. Some desires in our hearts are sinful desires. They're, they're desires for things that just, there's no way in the kingdom that we will indulge in those things or do those things. But for many, and this is what Augustine saw, for many, the order of the desires was the real problem. Some desires were given too much room and left unchecked by other desires. And so what humanity has within itself are, are these tensions in the heart, these wars of passion inside for power and for service. I want to serve, Lord. I, I know that's what you've done for me, but I really want this position. I, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord, but I also fear that group of people over there. Self-control says you have the ability to not live at the mercy of your desires. You have the ability to reach into your heart and to rearrange your desires so that they correctly reflect a kingdom ethic and a kingdom way of living. The gospel isn't, hey, it's all grace. Don't worry about what you do. No, it's the fruit of the Spirit will look like control of your desires, a disciplining of yourself in response to Christ for the sake of freedom. In light of his mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. If you, okay, if you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice without taking in his mercy, it doesn't work. You've missed the entire why in light of his mercy, in light of his love for you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this really goes with the next issue that Felix had, which is the judgment to come. I, I think that many can understand why this probably spooked Felix. It's like, have you ever read Revelation? Um, even tonight, this is probably not the point that you were looking forward to the most. <laughs> like, he's gonna talk about judgment, really? Okay, aren't Christians judgy enough already? Um, but I think that every person needs to understand the importance of judgment. See, we need judgment as humans. We need it. Every cry, we saw this over this past year, every cry for justice is answered for humanity in the final judgment of all people before God. You're like, what about right now? So there are some things, there are some cries for justice that will not be met in this life. But there's coming a judgment that we should have hope in, that God will sort things out. See, judgment in the Bible is a righting of wrongs. It is God being justice himself and determining who did right in his son and who was outside of his son doing wrong. And we need this. We have a culture, essentially, that demands atonement without a concept of forgiveness. If you're, if you're, if you're confused as you look at the world around you, we de it's a culture that demands atonement but does not believe in forgiveness. See, sin leaves a stain. It leaves a mark. And though our culture may deny that sin even exists, we feel it today. 
We are actually so afraid of sin in our culture, we will do almost anything to expiate the person, the sinner, out of our midst. This is called cancellation. Destroy their life over any discovered sin, no matter how long ago it happened. Why? Why are we doing that? Here's why. Let me propose to you that it's because our culture is terrified of sin. Terrified of it. It's, it's get away from me. Salvation is social opinion. So I need to get this black mark as far away from me as possible. I didn't know them. It's Peter around the fire. <laughs> See, we're grappling with a society that believes nothing's wrong, except some things that are always changing. We have no way of dealing with the wrong things without destroying people. No amount of kneeling before people, no amount of saying the right things, no amount of political correctness can save you. So we have to cancel and destroy them. What the gospel does is say, hey, I'm glad you're awake to the reality of sin. It exists. <laughs> Some things are wrong. <laughs> but the good news is that there's a way forward. And it's humility not to people, but towards God. People are not your judge. <laughs> For those of you who are young and you're worried about being on the right or wrong side of history, people are not your judge. You won't be judged by history. At the end of the book of Revelation, doesn't says, it doesn't say, and history was sitting on the throne. And it looked down through all of the thousands of years of human history, and it judged people based upon 2021 standards. Doesn't say that. It, yeah, thank God for that. I know. See, see, this is good news. What most people believe about judgment looks like this picture here. You're going to like this one. Whoa! Are you even allowed to show that much nudity in church? Holy smokes. Um, So on the, on the left side of the painting, you have the saints going into the kingdom. And on the right side of the painting, you have the damned being thrown into a very horrible, fiery place. And, and here's what's at the center. You have this angel, and it's hard to see, but he has a scale in his hand. And there's one human on one side of the scale and there's another human on the other side of the scale. And the human on the left side of the scale is more weighty. The things that they did with their life matter more in the kingdom. They're the saint. And on the right side of the scale is the damned. The person whose life has just been fluff. Chaff. And they are off to hell. What this gets wrong is is it tells you you're judged in comparison to the people around you. And this is why people think Christians are judgmental because we've bought into this idea of judgment, not the correct one. The reality is actually the opposite. Revelation chapter 20 tells us this, the very end of the story, John speaking, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. 
anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. See, it is God's standard that must be met, not man's. It is his book of life, not a book of history. So how do you get your name in that book? That sounds pretty scary, right? How do you get your name in that book? This is an allusion to uh, an ancient reality in different towns, that at the, the gate of every town, there was a book. And in that book was written the names of the people who, in, who were inhabitants of that town. These people live here. What the scriptures say in the book of Philippians is that, but those who are in Christ are citizens of heaven. How do you get your name in that book? You become a citizen of heaven by trusting Christ, becoming righteous, and saying, I'm humble enough to receive even you on a donkey. I'm humble enough to say, God, I have done wrong in my life, and I do want you. Would your sacrifice count for me? Death becomes, at that point, a spiritual border crossing back home. There is a citizenship. Either you belong to God, or by your own choice, you belong to this world. Either you want your name in that book, or you want your name in another book. How do you get it? You simply desire in your heart to have the unfair judge. (laughs) You're like, what? No, no, you want the unfair judge. Uh, Imagine a courtroom. And imagine that you are in that courtroom because you committed a crime. You killed someone, and it's been found out. There's no way around it. You're going to go to prison. You probably will never see the outside of a prison again. The judge reads the sentence, guilty. Your significant other cries out in emotional pain. Your mother gasps. You realize that there's no escaping it. Your fate has been sealed. When all of a sudden, after reading the sentence, the judge gets up from his seat, walks down off the bench, around to you, and stands next to you and proclaims, I will pay your sentence. I will go to prison for you. This is what the Bible says happens in Christ. Romans chapter three says this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. We need atonement. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Notice this. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How do you solve the stain of sin? How do you atone for the issues of humanity without losing justice? He's both the judge and he's the judge who comes off the bench and justifies. He's the unfair judge. What this does, when you understand this, guys, what this does is it not only helps you see the grace of God personally, 
but it moves our message to a sinning world from, hey, God's gonna judge you, you sinner, to God will judge you or he'll justify you. See, ultimately, he's a father who wants his sons and daughters back. And do you see the price that he paid just to get to you? Do you see this kind of judge? Is this what the, is this what the culture looks like? No, this is a far better judge. Have you taken that gospel in or does it scare you? <laughs> Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And you're so much easier.